Good evening. You are listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney. Tonight, we welcome back our friend, freelance writer, TJ Hafer. Hello. And we're also joined by Games Beat's project from the New American Century, Games Criticism Fellow, Rowan Kaiser. Good evening. And uh, Rowan, sort of in, in, in honor of, or in reference to your honorific, uh, for this evening's show, you're taking us all the way back, uh, 15 years to 2003 uh 2003 in games and we're going to sort of revisit the highs and lows of that year trends uh memorable memorable moments and i was wondering if you could set the stage a little bit for us uh and sort of what's what are the big what are the big headline items of this year what are the big takeaways how do we frame it well in addition to you know the creation of ice and the implementation of the patriot act we also have the (laughs) obviously the evasion of iraq um, and this spills okay. over to video, video games, games because everything are te- <laughs> everything is terrible. Just te- no. Uh, this is actually a really interesting and kind of weird year for video games. Uh, I'm not going to do one of the big full histories because nothing is quite as chaotic as the 90s. Um, but the the two big things here, one of which is tremendously important for strategy games, and one of which we'll cover a little bit. Uh, the strategy game or PC gaming centered one is that this is sort of that weird lull of a period after you know the the golden age of pc games but this is a year before steam is even released and like five before steam becomes a major thing so there's kind of a trend towards when companies realize they have something that's working they just put out the boxes for that so one of the big things that we're going to see over and over in our discussion today is that 2003 has a ton of expansions like this is probably going to be at least 50% of what we're talking about is strategy game expansions. We're paradox levels here. No, I'm not paradox levels. Uh, but yeah, there's a lot of them here. Um, and the other big thing is that as the PlayStation and, or PlayStation 2 and Xbox era is really in kind of full gear at this point, uh, the DualShock control is giving console gamers a lot more ability to do different kinds of things with just interface and we'll get to that a little bit with maybe some of these games um, there's at least one console strategy game that i'm excited to talk about here but uh uh just probably we'll see more of that in the general um discussion if or when we get to that and also another big thing is that the rise of the xbox meant that there is much more interaction between what used to be the divided western and eastern pc and console uh markets because Microsoft specifically is trying to get, say, Bioware to release their big fancy new games on the Xbox and not on PC first. And so there's an increasing interaction between those things. Those lines are getting blurred to the point where when we get to something now, it's really bizarre to have games that are only on console or only on PC if they're big enough. Uh, But uh, this is in that era that's the start of that process. So Sort of off the top of the, this list, um, when we turn to like great strategy games of the era, I think one of the first things that leaped out to me, uh, and it definitely dovetails with your remarks about it being sort of the the golden age of the of the expansion of the expansion pack, uh, and I think the paradox thing is worth bringing up because this is you're not going to see these levels of ex- expansionism uh, in. In, in games until really the the steam model sort of comes into its own really the paradox model 
uh, begins to develop when you begin seeing games turn into platforms and we sort of lose the language of expansion packs. Uh, but this is probably the, the high watermark of that era just before uh, the, the PC gaming went into its, its what we call like its period of decline. And so when I look at like a lot of the like most notable releases of this year, a lot of them are expansions for games that came out before. Uh, then some of which we've already talked about, uh, but it's it's interesting to me how many like, classics here are actually expansion expansions uh, in their own right. Yeah, we, we going through the list real quick. We have uh, Warcraft Three: The Frozen Throne, which I assume is the one that you wanted to mention first, and um, Civilization Three: Conquests, Age of Mythology: Titans, and Medieval Total War: Viking Invasions. All of which are pretty interesting. Well, I'd never played Age of Mythology, but the ones that I did play are interesting. I think yeah the uh, the the Titans. I, I don't think Troy has a lot of love for them. I think he he feels like they're, <laughs> uh, I, I believe it was off brand Greeks uh, was his was his verdict. Yeah, it was kind of a uh, they were they were almost like a weird idealized v- version of. Uh, I mean, they're, they're, they're worshipping Greek entities, and it's, it seems like they, they, they were almost like a fanboy's creation, like a mythology fanboy tried to create like his ideal uh, counter-historical race of... of uh, How are you not all over that? Vaguely Hellenic. Because <laughs> uh, I'm all about that historical accuracy, son. <laughs> That's not how Atlanteans work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that is, that is one model, right? This is one of the things that I think begins to uh, maybe undermine the expansion pack model a little bit. Is increasingly like it becomes unclear what you're getting. Like when it, like you're you're sort of having these questions crop up of is this going to be a real expansion or is it you know basically uh, just some re- repeat content. Right, I think around this period, uh, gosh, what was that Rome expansion? Alexander? Yeah, Alexander was like 2006 or so, but yeah, still within this period. Yeah, so like you ha- you have sort of the, the big expansions, and then you also have things that are that are much more uh, marginal in terms of the, the value they add. And I think Titans definitely ends up fitting that model. Age of Mythology is a great game. The Titans, not so much. It's certainly not the Brood War. <laughs> of of age of mythology yeah, i mean it did it it did add an expansion campaign that i thought was pretty decent uh it wasn't as good as the original three um but th- i i will give it credit that it did feel in terms of amount of content it felt i think more like an old school expansion pack than a modern day dlc uh or or whatever whatever it would end up being called um there was there was a lot there. It just didn't seem like they had put as much like thought and love into it as they did, you know, the original game factions. But Rowan, you mentioned we um, want to talk about like the other model, the the big expansion that kind of changes the trajectory of of a franchise. Arguably, I mean, the Frozen Throne has to be kind of the other extreme, right? Yeah, when, I mean, like I said, I didn't play the Age of Mythology one, but. When I look at the ones that I did play here, um, Civilization Three Conquest is exactly the sort of here's some extra stuff expansion. And I actually played all of those like little scenarios that it added, 
But when we talk about civilization expansion since then, we talk about things that dramatically change the entire shape of the game, and like you're not even playing the right game if you don't have them. Um, where Civilization Three Conquest was, here's a bunch of cool new stuff. Like here's here's a bunch of cool new mini campaigns. I remember like they had a neat one about the um, uh, not Mesopotamia, Mesoamerica. Uh, that uh, stuck in my head for some reason and changed the rules and maybe showed modders what they could do with the game, but it didn't really say. It's not like um, Civilization for Warlords or the, uh, not Gods and Kings, the the other one for Civilization V uh, that I always forget the name of, but was incredibly important uh, because obviously, otherwise I wouldn't forget the name. Uh, but uh, yeah, that that was... Thoroughly inessential if you wanted a complete Civilization Three experience, but it was kind of fun if you wanted. Whereas Warcraft Three: The Frozen Throne is, you know, one of the greatest expansions of all time, possibly the greatest if you care about the narrative, which um, I know you and I do, Rob. Uh, and I can pretty much wager my life savings on TJ doing uh, TJ doing so yeah. as well, <laughs> given what I know about the man. Um, but yeah, it's. Uh, <laughs> It has, you know, both a regular continuation of the Warcraft 3 campaign, finishing off the storyline of Arthas that sort of trailed off while it was doing its other thing at the end of the original Warcraft 3. So it felt like an essential continuation of the campaign. Um, it also added a bunch of powerful new options for modding and building that became, you know, MOBAs, uh, which is kind of important. Um, and also within the, the game levels themselves, um, it got really creative with the level design, including like starting up the tower defense and the MOBA genres within the certain campaign levels. Uh, so we're just talking about something that's, you know, absolutely um, essential for understanding how strategy games have progressed. And that's in an expansion or a as including an expansion as part of a complete whole that is definitely not complete if you don't have that. We were talking about we were talking a little bit before the show, and you both seem to feel that the Frozen Throne is like speaking of high watermarks, maybe the last great Blizzard narrative. Um, and I was wondering if you guys could talk about that a little bit. Like, where is Warcraft three? in terms of like where, where where does where does the frozen throne take War, warcraft 3 and how does blizzard never quite reach that again so i would say that the key thing about warcraft 3 and at the time you know in the pre game of thrones era this was a much 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 bigger deal but at the time like Everything about the way this narrative builds is that you start you start the original Warcraft three with Prince Arthas, who is the human prince of blah blah blah, and uh, he gets corrupted over the course of the first two campaigns. In that, turns into a Death Knight, and then the third game is about kind of him moving towards his destiny to be evil or maybe good or whatever. And like they always have the chance to have him be redeemed. And they never do. They're like, no, he's just going to be a bad guy. And this sort of, like, it's deeply satisfying in a narrative sense, and it's deeply satisfying in a game sense, like the, the levels that you do throughout this, and specifically the last campaign is Arthas losing all his power until he gets it back on the final level. Um, and the, by 
literally by levels, like heroes in that game would go from level 1 to level 10, and then Arthas goes from level 10 to level 1 over the course of that narrative, which is uh, and then, you know, he explodes at the end with in the, his Death Knight power, and uh, it's really satisfying. Um, but yeah, it, it actually is willing to just straight up be dark at a time when this is not something that video games are typically willing to do. Um, and, you know, 10 years later, that would feel played out, probably. But that's that's the thing that always stood out to me about the Frozen Throne. Well, there's also that sequence um, in the uh, at the very end of the the kind of bonus campaign you get to play in uh, in Duratar at the end, where you know you you see Thrall and Jaina kind of team up against Jaina's dad uh, and and say like, okay, I'm not gonna put up with his bigotry anymore. I'm I'm basically switching sides which was an interesting inversion of warcraft one and warcraft two which were basically all orcs are bloodthirsty monsters that want to destroy everything in their path and then you know you get to the end of frozen throne and all of a sudden you know the 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 horde are kind of the the good guys all of a sudden and they've you know wow has done various things to murky those waters in the meantime um, but it was it was an interesting point in the the storytelling of like oh okay so the the kind of monstrous faction at the end of the day you know maybe they're not you know the humans aren't really so different from them or maybe they're more actually more <laughs> morally justifiable in their actions than than you know the shining armored humans are now which is something that was kind of explored throughout Frozen Throne where you had you know, Lord Garethos oppressing the Blood Elves and, you know, kind of forcing them out of the Alliance and kind of proving that the 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 Shining Knights of the Realm aren't necessarily all, always the good guys, which I thought was uh, a, a cool thing to do that's, again, been done more uh, in the, in, you know, intervening years. But at that point, it was definitely not common to show them that way. Just add... That this is a real-time strategy game, which is the especially fascinating part, that we have fond memories of the narrative of a genre that only the Blizzard games give you fond memories of the narratives for, uh, is is something special as well. Yeah, I, I just, I always do wonder how it is that Blizzard never quite recaptures that, and maybe it's just the nature of World of Warcraft definitely necessitated a degree of circularity to the universe and character arcs. Um, but it's it's always just striking to me how, in a weird way, it feels like Blizzard has tried to echo a lot of the beats of Warcraft 3 and uh, Frozen Throne in later games, but for some reason never quite pulls them off. And I'm never quite sure what it is that's turned right like if it's it, just we've seen it before we've seen it too many times or if there's something else it it feels to me like like there were you know seven years between frozen throne and their next big narrative game which was starcraft 2 which was fine like the the wings of liberty had a perfectly good campaign but it's not one that i would say as a narrative alone like the level design was also good uh but as a narrative alone is up there with original starcraft diablo 2 or warcraft 3 um so there's just like this intervening time where i feel like they just start to believe their own bullshit too much yeah uh and you see this with diablo 3 
Um, I mentioned Diablo 2 as a good narrative, but Diablo 2 barely has a narrative. What it does is it has a really does a really good job of making you care about the world. Like it's the world is in this disastrous place and you are just kind of walking through the history figuring out what happened and trying to resolve it through violence but you know that's diablo um but diablo 3 is like oh these people really care about diablo's lore let's make a game that's all about the lore and it's like no 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 don't want that we want you to like keep it slow silent and sad uh have it be something that we're going through much later and there are levels in that they've added to Diablo 3 later with uh, their patches that do this that are my favorite levels in that game. Um, so I know it's still theoretically possible for them, but it really just feels like they knew people loved their narratives, and so they decided to give more of what they thought people loved about the narratives. And if there's one thing that nerds are bad at, it's explaining why they like the things they like. So what we end up with is just <laughs> these uh, more, more, more all the time and not like understanding uh, restraint is only really true for diablo uh but yeah well and i also feel like um i mean blizzard also tend to be nerds themselves right like i think their their own inclinations have them pushing in the direction of more 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 and the other thing is that Warcraft, like as you pointed out rowan like warcraft 3 they basically commit to the fact that no a character is going to become corrupted here and it's going to feel like they are redeemable and that this can be reversed. And that is, that is a deception. That is, that is not, in fact, the case. The, this, uh, this, is a, this remains a story of moral damnation. And I think Blizzard at this point has a history of... It, it maybe takes on more of the wrestling model in a lot of ways. They tend to fall in love yeah. with a lot of their characters so that, oh, this person who is bad but is really cool, they're good now. Uh, and this yeah. character was good. Needs to have their badass turns. So they can get like they can have the expansion or the or or the or the the level where they just kick ass and kill a bunch of people, and you get the sort of the catharsis of seeing a formerly goody two shoes make that turn. Yeah. No, I've said before that's all the Warcraft World of Warcraft story is now is an epic fantasy themed pro wrestling promotion. Yeah. And you only really care about it if you have specific characters that you really want to see throw down at some point. Yeah, I I view it through the lens of superhero comics more than wrestling because I care about those, but not wrestling, even though they're pretty much the same thing. But yeah, it's it's what happens when you're trying to serialize the same characters over and over and over. There are only so many different ways you can go, and Blizzard's favorite way to go has always been, you know, the heel turn. So someone gets corrupted by power, everyone teams up to take them down. Like that's that's their thing, and eventually, like that becomes predictable. And when you have the same characters doing that, when you don't do a time jump or a reset or anything like that, it's going to just get exhausting. Uh, TJ, real quick, did you ever play Viking Invasions? I did. Yeah. All right. Yeah, let's, that was... let, let's talk about this. Yeah. Uh huh. Where are you at with Viking Invasions? Because my feeling, very strongly, and I'm saying this out of a trace of irony. Uh huh. The Vikings were way OP. Oh, they were. No, they were absolutely ridiculous. They're pretty much their entire unit roster was absurd, both statistically and in terms of like what they actually portrayed the Vikings in in terms of like their aesthetic and their fighting style and the type of tools they could bring to the battle were all pretty much ridiculous. It was 
it was kind of uh, more of like a 19th century romanticized, you know, I like version of Vikings than what, you know, creative assembly is taken a little bit stronger tack towards history in some cases since then in some cases they i mean they still had crocodile warriors in rome too so i'm not sure that you can really give them that much credit but um i'm not sure i played rome too so that's disappointing <laughs> <ring a> bell. <laughs> um yeah but i mean like yeah there was a dude with a giant horned helmet on the box and stuff it was uh it's actually one of the first viking games i remember playing uh with uh, in terms of strategy games at least which is kind of an interesting flashpoint but yeah the the it seemed like the vikings were like designed to just go in and mess up everything that you knew about medieval total war up to that point i I just wonder like did you love that because my memory of the vikings like i vividly remember the moment i I was like i think i have to be done with this game now Uh i was playing one of the i think i was playing one of the saxons might have been one of Uh the irish but i can't remember for certain but I'd hit a point where I had a pretty good mid-game roster of units. I was defending a, a river crossing, and medieval river crossings are really hard. Oh, yeah. Uh, basically, they're still in that Shogun 1 model of you have one bridge, and uh-huh. someone's got to cross it, and they're just going to get wrecked on that bridge. Um, and I was attacked by, like, 80 uh, Viking Huskarls. And I had hundreds of dudes, hundreds of dudes versus 80 Viking Huskarls. Uh, they come onto the bridge and we sort of block them at the exit of the bridge. And like, they just start carving through my army, like hunt, like hundreds of guys just getting killed by this Viking Thresher. I managed to get a unit around behind them and hit them from behind and I think I dropped their numbers. Like, the unit of 80, I think, dropped to, like, 13. And the uh-huh. remaining 13 routed the rest of my army. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they and were absurd. I was like, yeah. we're done here. Like, this this doesn't feel good. Um, but was that, like, uh, is that a fun story to tell about Vikings? Like, was was little TJ playing that and, <laughs> and, and being being there, sort of rubbing your hands? Back in elementary school. Uh, I, I, hey, I was in, <laughs> I, I think I was, fre- this would be, it was either eighth grade or freshman year of high school. So funny enough, 14 year old TJ was not all about them Vikings yet. This, this predates uh, that, that iteration of me. I was more wanting to be a, a Numenorian Ranger or something like that at this point in my life. Actually, was, we got one of those games to talk about too. Uh, true, and I, actually, it's 2003, so I was definitely hardcore wanting to be a Jedi uh, because of Knights of the Old Republic. Um, but yeah, it, it's uh, it, it's not something that stands out as um, a particularly rewarding experience in my time in strategy games up to that point, just because I hadn't really started exploring uh you know norse history and and norse mythology and stuff at that point so the vikings were kind of like oh yeah these these guys these guys are kind of cool but i definitely wasn't fully into my uh grown into my my you know sheepskin boots yet so i think it turned me against the vikings just permanently like (laughs) at this point i i tune into every season of uh the last kingdom 
And I'm just like, man, I hope some Vikings get fucking killed. <laughs> See, we watched, like, that, just... we watched that episode, late, or we watched that series of the exact opposite way, probably. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, this is a, this is a real yeah. tragedy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I remember two things about this game. Um, I was not super into Medieval Total War. I didn't think that it was terribly well balanced in any way. Uh, I don't even remember why I got the expansion in the first place. I mean, I liked it. It was fun to, you know, ride knights around and smash things, but it was not at the Total War level that I would get to with Rome next year. Yeah. Um, but anyway, the two things that I remember are the Huskarls were just insane. Like, if you were playing the Saxons, then, like, trying to do whatever research you got to get them or whatever was, like, the first thing to do. And if you were going up against them, you should just run away. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and the other thing that I remember is that there's one random song on that soundtrack, I think it's called Viking Mobilize 2, that is, like, literally the best video game music I've ever heard. Uh, <laughs> that that era of Total War had some really good music. I loved the music in Rome 1 as well. Like, yeah. yeah. That, that one also had especially good map music, too. But this was just, like, the random track that would play while you were setting up your army and before <laughs> the fighting started was one of the best that they've ever done. Uh, so, yeah, that's... that's I think I listened to the, the medieval Total War soundtrack probably, like, ten times more than I played the game. And I played a decent demand, but... Yeah. yeah. No, the, the way those Huskarls fight, I just picture the... Like, there was just some coder at Creative Assembly in, like, a Man of War sh shirt just putting values into a spreadsheet like man these guys are gonna fuck shit up let's add some more decimal points on there like i i don't think there was any balance thought that went into that it was just like these are gonna be the amazing the most amazing unit in the game they're gonna kill everything that's that was the only the only logic put into it it seems like but it was also it was also the that was like the snowballiest era of Total War, and I don't I think that's why I didn't really end up liking Medieval One or the expansion all that much because it that was really the era of Total War where it was pretty much you kill half the factions on the map and that's then it's just really like true. a this is all wrong slog, I'm sorry I a hate slog this. to to mop up the rest this is that's, yeah, that's every Total War <laughs> but. I am sorry, listeners. I am sorry. I should have gotten real medieval experts and fans on the show. <laughs> um, we are we are not doing justice to medieval medieval total war. Um, at least the AI could snowball. At least they could. Uh, well, I... at least they could snowball within like a twenty second of pressing the intern button. <laughs> uh, now. Setting the expansions aside, though, like there are some, also some really major strategy game releases uh, in this year, and I, I think you know maybe top of the top of mind, uh, particularly because uh, you know I've certainly gotten into it a lot this year, is Rise of Nations, uh, which ends up being like. I feel so tantalized by it, right? Because, like, it's right there in 2003. There's this other direction the RTS can go. Like, Rise of Nations is right there, pointing the way. It doesn't all have to be, uh, you know, descendants of the Blizzard model or the uh, Command and Conquer model. It can, be, it can be something else. It can be more of a genre blend. It can be more of a grand strategic uh, RTS. And 
we have it and it's great and it's it's still really a lot of fun to play but it just doesn't seem to take off the way it needs to to become its own thing i i adore I, rise of nations <laughs> i i still yeah, think there I, are I was, things that, that that game did that should have become staples of rts that for some reason didn't and i still scratch my head about it the the only conventional rts i have ever tried to play competitively uh, with any kind of uh consistency like that's that's how much you I, got even i liked it I played online for a while. Serious might be a little, little bit of a strong term, but yes, I, I, I made some attempts at playing competitively regularly. Yeah, it's um, I don't know. It's it's such an interesting uh, evolution of Brian Reynolds' career. Uh, I guess you can almost sort of view it as Brian Reynolds is a guy who like conti- like is continually trying to figure out like what is the next big thing going to be where's the next place to go and eventually that leads him to facebook right eventually that leads him to to, to <laughs> zynga uh but he, but here in like the early 2000s where you could convince yourself that like pc gaming was going to be the center of the gaming world that this this was where you, where you wanted to be and the rts was like one of the great mainstream genres uh of this period it is so interesting to see the way he takes like lessons from civilization and reimagines them within an RTS framework. But it seems almost completely unbeholden to the way any other RTS works. Uh, you know, in terms, when, when, I go back, when I go back and I play Rise of Nations, city placement, uh, territory control, supply, uh, oh, the blessed naval transport system, which is just your, your, your troops turn into boats and they sail themselves across oceans once you have the technology. Uh, what a great thing that is. But when, when I go back and look at this game, uh, it just kind of discards a lot of the constraints of both traditional like grand strategy games and RTSs. And I think remains something that is entirely singular. Like there just is no, there, you know, there've been so many games that have like come along and been spiritual successors to some other cult classic from like the late '90s, early 2000s, that that whole thing, I don't think we've seen that happen with, with Rise of Nations. And at this point, I kind of suspect we're never going to see it happen. Uh, this remains kind of a, uh, I don't know, the Velvet Underground of RTS games. <laughs> it, it's funny you say that because this is basically what the argument I was making on the last one of these we did about Seven Kingdoms. Okay, um, which I think does this in a more extreme fashion. Than Rise of Nations, Rise of Nations, like that, or Seven Kingdoms was like trying to do an entirely new type of RTS, where um, Rise of Nations is trying to meld the RTS with the civilization style. Uh, but yeah, it's it it's this thing where we really want it to go be something else, and it's uh, it's good at what it is, but it's just not going to have those people come out after. But what's Brian Reynolds doing this way? Is he still with Zynga? Uh, so following his Twitter, I think genuinely what he is doing is he is playing war games at conventions <laughs> with like designers and military intelligence, like retired military personnel, <laughs> like genuinely, I think he's become like one of those competitive war game, like tournament sharks, um, which I mean, shit, I'd do that if I could, 
Like if I had had the time and the means, I would definitely be sort of rolling from con to con, like just sharking people at a coin game. (laughs) New new Patreon tier. Yeah. 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 No, it's it's funny because I like a lot of times when I when I'll go look back at Rise of Nations and I think about like when I'm watching a, a StarCraft two match today and like I love StarCraft two, but one of the problems they don't ever seem to have been able to solve as far as the the competitive scene goes is board control. And Rise of Nations had just such like elegant built in mechanics that that allowed you to have kind of hard and soft board control that I feel like that would be a great uh, spectator RTS today if somebody did something like that with, you know, a modern engine that looks nice. And it's very, even Rise of Nations was super readable. If you did it again today, you could make it even more readable and more interesting. And and I I I love the way that it, it, it creates that, you know, the push and pull on the map, not just with units, but... Uh, you know, with the the borders expanding and contracting and stuff, and I'd love to see that in a modern game, particularly a competitive R- RTS. And re- remember the 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 borders were novel at this point. Like the, uh-huh. that's sort of something we take for granted with the grand strategy games these days. But the first mainstream civilization to have them was Civilization Three, which was a year or two before. And the first one to actually have it was like the Civ Call to Power from like '99 or so. So. Not only is that just like elegant to watch and super fun, but it's also novel and exciting, and uh, that was also a great aspect of Rise of Nations. Didn't board well? Borders popped up, and I think Alpha Centauri preceded Civ Three. Um, um, I don't think they were quite the same way, but you're the Alpha Centauri expert more than me. Well, For reasons I mean, that we'll get to next year. Game. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but I, I think the other. Uh, you know, I think it's a good point that this game is very readable and there's a lot of touches that like are really forward thinking in terms of quality of life improvements. The game's extensive use of tooltips uh, to help you sort of parse what you are seeing is incredibly helpful and welcome. Um, I do think it is easy to underestimate the degree to which that game poses a really steep learning curve challenge. Right. Like as I've gotten back into this game and started really effectively relearning it this year uh, after messing around with it for our retro for our classic game analysis ages and ages ago. um, All these things you're mentioning, the way borders work, the way cities work, the way the different resources interact, the special the, the national unit types, the eras, the different technologies. There's so many different like technology like separate branches and what order you sort of unlock them in matters a great deal. All of this stuff is, um, it's very easy to sort of muddle through rise of nations in a way that you can never muddle through in Starcraft. It has that going for it. But on the other hand, there it's a bit like maybe age of age of empires to age of Kings in that, the granular differences between factions and the different ways you can sort of build out your faction and develop it based on what resources around you are around you on the map. Um, those differences are really profound. Yeah. But you need to like, you really need to have like studied and considered those differences and either hit, hit strategy guides to understand the ramifications of everything you're saying, or 
you just need to have played a ton of Rise of Nations to understand what those variables mean in different situations you can find yourself uh, in. You know, what kind of map am I on? What faction am I? What resources are around me? Who am I against? Uh, Rise of Nations makes those calculations so much harder than in almost any other RTS I can name. You just made me flash back to thinking about that in a way that I have not since, you know, 2006 or whenever it was that I was trying to do this. But yeah, I, I think I was a Bantu man. What was, what was their trick? Uh, migration. I think they got population around a lot better. Uh, let's see here. Cities cost 75% less, plus one to city limit, plus 100% population limit. So yeah. Okay, that's, that's pretty useful. Yeah. That was uh, getting all over the map. Yeah. Um, I think maybe to, at the other end of this... Uh, well, no, actually, it's, it's unfair to say this. Command and Conquer Generals is from this era as well. And yes, it's a Command, Command and Conquer game. But, and I've never, I think it's the one I've missed. Uh, really? Because at that point I'd gotten, I had felt, I had been really turned off by Tiberian Sun. Yeah. It just, it, like, after that game seemed to have taken forever to come out, I'd spent years sort of anticipating it, and it just didn't feel new or novel or fresh to me in, in any way. I was sort of turned off that. And I'm not sure if Red Alert 2 had come out by this point, but... Uh, basically Red Alert was the last Command and Conquer I really fell in love with. And by the time Generals came out, I was just just a little bit done. Which, in retrospect, may have been a colossal mistake. Because this is the one that, from everything I've heard, yeah. I probably would have liked the most. It's the least like Command and Conquer games. Yeah, no, Generals was the last Command and Conquer game I played. I fell in love with. Uh, particularly with Zero Hour Expansion. Um, which could have been the fact that I was I was a Warcraft kid and not a Command and Conquer kid, and I didn't really know who Kane was or what was going on with GDI and not, and so I booted this up, and it's like, you don't need to know any of the backstory. And I was like, great. And it's like, it's the U.S. versus China versus terrorists. And I'm like, I'm a teenager in the U.S. in the year 2003. I can understand <laughs> that. <laughs> um, no, I thought it was a really good, it, like... StarCraft gets a lot of credit for being a really good asymmetrical RTS. I don't feel like uh, Generals and Zero Hour get touted enough for how good they were as asymmetrical RTSs, where every faction had a really well-defined niche and they played well against each other. And, you know, there were there were specific counterplays that made a lot of sense uh, between, you know, this unit on this faction and that unit on that faction, where it felt like they had really put a lot of thought into it, into building this web of, of, you know, counters between all the, all these different units. And I, it looked great. I mean, it even holds up fairly well for being ostensibly a modern warfare RTS, kind of the way it was stylized. Um, I, I feel like you can still boot it up today and it, you know, it doesn't look like total garbage, which is kind of an achievement. Um, yeah, I played, uh, I was still playing a lot of Brood War multiplayer at this point, but I think Generals, and then especially after Zero Zero Hour came out, kind of gave it a run for its money as my uh, multiplayer RTS of choice for a while there. Yeah, I've always I've always regretted uh, missing out on that one, especially given that 
you know, ultimately the Command and Conquer series begins to try, it tries a couple different ways to get back to basics, but basics gets increasingly defined as campy videos and, uh, you know, almost like Silver Age comic book conceits, uh, which I don't yeah. know, maybe Rowan was all over, uh, but but I certainly wasn't. <laughs> I I was never into any of the Command and Conquers, so. Yeah. Um, uh, I think the, the only other RTS we have here is Homeworld 2, which none of us played that much. Yeah. Uh, yeah, shamefully enough. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I know that there's a lot of Homeworld uh, fans who, who adore that one. Uh, but the problem for me, like by that point, okay, so there's something else we should talk a little bit about here. The tempo at which franchises are born, release new installments and die in this era is incredible to contemplate from the vantage of like 2018, right? Like we're talking about medieval total war Viking invasions, which is a pretty, you know, sub substantive expansion. Uh, it's coming out basically within months of the original game releasing in the fall of 2002. Uh, yeah. Warcraft 3 The Frozen Throne is following kind of hot on the heels of Warcraft 3. Like, the, these gaps don't exist. They're not very big gaps here. And Homeworld 2, from my perspective from this era, like, we just... It, it felt like almost we just had Homeworld. Like, I was still in that phase where, like, I was struggling. Uh, you know, I would had to go to college. I was struggling with... Uh, well... Well, not with school, like school could take a backseat, but I was struggling to finish the Homeworld 1 campaign. Like, I was just, <laughs> you know, that was a campaign where you could find yourself deep into it and realize, like, ooh, I was not efficient in playing this at all. And I did I'm not screwed. steal every single frigate in the first mission, and now everything is dead forever. <laughs> yeah. So the thing is, like, Homeworld 2 comes along, and I'm like, I'll put a pin in that until I finish Homeworld 1. And. The next time I turn around, like Homeworld is basically dead as a franchise. Well, they they uh, had that other Homeworld Cataclysm. Like, yeah, wasn't that like in two thousand two? Um, I forget I forget the release order. Um, yeah, isn't that that's also the one? Somebody just re-released Cataclysm, right? I feel like that was the one when they lost the source code for years, and basically the game could not be reconstructed uh, without it. And then I remember reading like last year that somehow they'd managed to hack together like a new version of Cataclysm. Okay, yeah, Cataclysm was 2000, and first Homeworld was 99, so this one's 2003. Yeah. Okay, so that's, a, that's a pretty decent gap for this period, honestly. Yeah. Uh, but another game that uh, don't have to talk about too much here that does that is Age of Wonders Shadow Magic, which I think comes out between Age of Wonders 1 and Age of Wonders 2, uh, it for, between like 2002 and 2004. And like, I really liked the first one, but then there's just Age of Wonders everywhere, and I'm like, oh, well, I liked the first one a lot. I will stick with that because it's huge. Okay, bye. Yeah, I think it was a lot easier just to iterate on something back like at that point you know teams were smaller development costs weren't as high there there wasn't as likely to be like a board of directors hovering over you or anything i think it was kind of like you know blizzard finishes starcraft and they're like hey let's let's just make an expansion in nine months why the hell not like you know it's it, it you finish 
Finish Medieval Total War. Oh, let's do an expansion for that real quick, since since we're all here already. You know, it seemed like it was just a pretty easy thing to turn around. Oh, here's some ideas we had while we were developing the main game, and, you know, we're just going to throw them out there, see how it goes. Uh, so were either of you into war games in this era? I was not... And there are two really interesting ones here that I always heard good things about that I'm excited yeah. to hear you talk about. All right. Set, set me <laughs> up. Set, serve, serve it up, Rowan. All right. So I would be reading video game review sites in this era. I think often uh, GameSpot or GameStop. No, GameSpot. That's the, that's the site, not the store. Um, and, you know, they review general video games. And then all of a the sudden, they drop this review of this thing called Corson Pocket, which I've never even heard of historically, let alone like the actual war game itself. But they're like, here is the game that is saving war gaming. Like the sort of headlines that I have not seen since Panzer General in 1994. Um, and I read the review and it's like, all right, these guys do supply amazingly. This is the best supply war game that we have seen ever. It's going to be great. I could probably look it up and find out who did the review because we like know this person at this point. But um, <laughs> yeah, so I've always been incredibly curious about Corson Pocket. Uh, yeah, Corson Pocket rules. And the weird thing is, I think even for 2003, it was a game out of step with its era. Um, it just it had it looks weird if you go back to it today it looks weird its aesthetic is strange the map the map art is is a little bit is is a little bit odd uh the counters are are a little bit strange in terms of like if you're comparing course and pocket to just games like of the era side by side i think this is one of the moments where you start to realize the degree to which like war game critics are starting to really diverge or con themselves about how the genre stacks up to what is being offered in the mainstream because course and pocket doesn't look particularly readable. Um, it is just, it is such a product of board game design philosophies, but they are undeniably brilliantly adapted and reimagined for the PC and furthermore, and we talked a little bit about this when we talked about Course and Pocket uh, you know, a few years ago on the show, it is bolstered by some of the most ferocious AI I have ever seen. It does play into that, that uh, notion of the game being very smart about ha how it handles supply. Uh, I think maybe the, the analogy I would use is imagine a much more detail-oriented, realism-oriented uh, unity of command. Uh, that's kind of what Course and Pocket is. But the scenarios are not puzzles. The AI is playing the same game as you, and the AI is a vicious bastard. Um, you know, the, the late, great Ian Trout, uh, you know, sort of coded, coded this AI. And the thing that is, real, like, I, I do not understand the dark magic uh, by by which it was conceived, Bruce Garrick and I had a long chat about this actually when when I hung out with him uh, this past summer. He sort of has this theory that basically in this period, uh, AI designers 
like Ian Trout was a game designer and an AI designer. He was sort of doing both. And he sort of suspects that one of the insights that like Trout had and, and SSG had in this period is that basically you can't come in later and add an AI to play whatever the hell game you made. Like for the AI to really parse the game to understand it, you have to have designed the game with an with an idea of how the AI should behave and sort of steered it in, in that direction uh, from the beginning. Course in Pocket plays like that kind of game. The AI has a deep understanding of what is going on. And so you will do things that you just, it will do things that you just don't see in other war games. Uh, like the example I return to a lot, it will do a local counterattack. And not stupidly, it won't overextend and just try to cut your supply lines and walk itself into a death trap. It's not going to do that. It will strike out, hit your units, tear, like, you know, tear your units up, and then it will pull back to a better defensive line and the counterattacking like armored units will vanish. You know, they will, they will go and uh, resume their mobile response role. And you will see that happen in course and pocket. I, 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 to this day, I struggle to think of another war game where I see that kind of dynamism and ability to almost uh, like switch roles, switch directives based on the state of play on the map. Uh, it's, it's a weird and powerful thing. I, I cannot think of a war game that I have ever played that has small counterattacks and pulling back. Yeah, yeah, it either goes all the like way mind in, boggling. or it just attacks one hex and calls it a day, right? And yeah. here it will be like, no, it will actually like achieve a local breach, exploit it, and then pull out before it like creates a salient that it will get trapped in. It's 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 an eerie thing to to play, honestly. Like that is that is my enduring impression of course in pocket is is this archaic, odd looking game with tons of like clear board game DNA running through it. And then it has this uncanny sense of like intelligence uh in it. It's 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 an eerie game to go back and play. Uh and it's also a little like sad to go back and play and realize that we just don't we we just don't get many war games like this. We don't get many AIs that are capable of doing this. Uh, but yeah, so I would say like it, it it stands out as a classic. It also compares interestingly, I think, with um, Combat Mission Three Africa Corps, which is uh, you know from from this year as well. And Combat Mission, I think, came much closer to bringing war games into the three D era successfully um and ultimately like i'm not sure like you know the, the genre was headed overall to towards becoming a niche but combat mission in general 3d graphics uh 3d maps you know free moving camera felt much more in tune with what games in general were, were doing it was more abstracted more stylized but it was recognizably of a piece with modern games in a way that Course and Pocket is not. I do, however, I've always sort of wondered, did Combat Mission 3 suffer from the fact that I think you have to be a particular type of wargamer to really get into the Africa Core stuff? Like, that's that's always just been my impression, right? Like, uh, that, 
That's interesting because my recollection was Combat Mission was always like this series of war games that I never managed to get around to playing, but like you said, they were the ones that had the broad appeal, but the one that people kept seeming to recommend was this one. This was this was the best of the the original trilogy, and then you know they fell into their niche. They're like still being made and sold by mail nowadays, but yeah, uh, they're not they're not any sort of blip on the mainstream discussion of war games, which is strange given that they were considered so close to that. Uh, yeah, I think there's a new one coming out too. I think they're they've gone back. They're, look, Shock Force Two is coming. I saw Charlie Hall uh, over Polygon tweeting about it and getting very excited, uh, and I. Like what I remember is like I remember Shock Force One being a disaster, like almost like killing the franchise. Uh, so it's interesting to see how that series has sort of made a comeback by embracing its niche status. But Africa Core, uh, yeah, I think I suspect the reason people recommend Africa Core a lot is because, and I think Troy has talked about this combat mission. While it was a combined arms war game always felt happiest particularly in those earlier editions and in that, in that original trilogy really that was a game that was best with armored vehicles like you could put infantry on the map never felt quite right the infantry never like their movement seemed scaled weirdly it just the infantry always felt like it was a, it was abstracted onto the map uh whereas armored vehicles were like the literal thing that you were moving around infantry it never felt that way <laughs> When you talk about it that way, do you think that it compares in a way to uh, Steel Division? Uh, that's a great question. Um, I do. I think, I think, I think that's actually a, a, pretty good, a, pre, a pretty good analogy. Uh, that it is in general more interested in combined arms and the utilization of mechanized and armored tactics. Infantry is mostly there to like provide some special roles but it's not the star of the show and with africa core uh that campaign is you know that 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 is the ideal battlefield for armor for armor right yeah so i suspect that's one reason uh that people that people really fell in love with it um this is also an interesting era from the city builder manager uh, standpoint. We, you know, TJ, you and I talked to, um, oh gosh, I'm going to botch his name again, Justin uh, Rosni uh, Rosniak. Rosniak, yeah. yeah. Uh, a uh -huh. few weeks ago about City Skylines Industries and, uh, you know, his, his sort of view, and I think it's a widely shared one, is that SimCity 4 is kind of the most fully featured and sophisticated city builder we've maybe ever seen right like it still might in some ways surpass uh you know city skylines um it also maybe marks the end of uh <laughs> of um oh gosh what was the name of the studio maxis of, of maxis being maxis, able to yeah. be a sim city studio yeah, it 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 definitely it, it's sort of similar to uh how we were kind of discussing that 2003 was you could call it the end point for Blizzard in terms of of them putting out, you know, really really exceptional narratives. It does kind of seem like this was the end of Maxis having really ambitious design goals. 
I mean, really, there were the only other SimCity that came out after it was something that was trying to be something that was very completely different from what SimCity 4 was, so I'm not even sure if, if it's appropriate to say that they uh, they stopped trying as much as... I mean, I don't even know how much of the studio DNA that was around for SimCity 4 was still around for the... the was it 2012 that... I think it was the 11. The online SimCity but... came out. I think I was I was working at PC Gamer at that point, so I think it would have to be at least 2012. Okay, yeah, um, it, that might be right. But regardless, yeah. SimCity crap. Oh, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, well, at this point, they like the other thing that's changed in the intervening years is they made The Sims. Right. Well, that was 2000, Which, but yes, yeah. the, but like. It, the Sims continued. The Sims did not run out of gas. Right, that, and that's the thing is like in terms of they also they also tried to do Spore at one point. Yeah, that's that's a whole thing. An <laughs> odd, an odd outing, uh, in many ways. Um, any other, uh, any, any other of these these managers, these city builders, uh, you know, ca- catch your eye. Uh, you know, we got Port Royal, Patrician. The only one of these that I think I played, also Tropico 2, uh, but I don't even remember what Praetorians was, but I assume that's a war game. I'm not, I'm not actually maybe, sure it was. Maybe we, should, maybe we should get Troy on real quick. Um, <laughs> Tropico 2, I think, is the pirate-themed one that everyone says is super weird. So Troy was going on about that the other day. Uh, the, yeah. it's, it's the strangest of the Tropicos. Yeah, uh, but yeah, Point Royale is the one I played, and like I picked up the box, and it's like, here's Pirates. And I'm like, I miss Pirates. I love Pirates. That's my favorite game. Um, but it's the just the part of Pirates where you sail around trading things, and it doesn't have a whole lot of personality. So I'm like, oh, I don't like this. Um, but I could see the people who really like sailing around trading things would love that and Patrician 3. Um but yeah, that's that's the extent of my city builder discourse here. <laughs> Praetorians is apparently a 3D real-time tactics game published by IDOS based on Julius Caesar's campaigns in Gaul, Britain, and Crassus's battle in Parthia. So, yeah, I didn't I totally missed this one. But yeah, it's like a Roman era tactical wow. game. Yeah. That sounds fascinating. We should have yeah. looked that up beforehand. Yeah, it was pretty well reviewed. <laughs> <laughs> you could play either the, the Roman Republic or the Ptolemaic Kingdom, inaccurately represented as the New Kingdom of Egypt, which I could make the argument that uh, Rome 2 does the same thing. But Rome 2 inaccurate <laughs> about the Egyptians? <laughs> or, or a generic barbarian tribe. I love my generic barbarian tribes. You are a generic barbarian tribe, DJ. <sighs> I hey, you know where's the lie? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so uh, I think after that, the last two strategy things we have are the grand strategy, which is some fun, and the uh, tactics games, which is probably where this this year shines the most. So, uh, which one do you want to hit? Uh, we can touch on uh, grand strategy real quick. Okay, this has one of my favorite stories in gaming. In that there's a total fucking disaster here. That disaster <laughs> is known as Master of Orion 3. 
Um, Massive Orion is obviously the series that has dominated space strategy since the original one came out in 94, maybe 93. I don't remember which episode we did that on. But yeah, early 90s. Um, Massive Orion 2 like, literally defines the genre. We've talked about this a dozen times about how people need to stop fucking making Massive Orion 2 over and over. And so then there's Massive Orion 3, which was an attempt to stop making Master of Orion 2 over and over. It was supposed to be the space strategy game that, like, felt like you were actually in charge of an empire instead of just sort of doing civilization redone. It had all these ideas about, you know, you're only managing certain parts of the, the thing of the empire. You're supposed to, like, be doing only the biggest decisions that you can. There are all these political pushes back and forth. Um, the things that, like, someone like me wants to hear exactly, like, the the issues that I have with Mass of Orion 2, those are being fixed in the most ambitious form possible. And so the game comes out, and it is literally the worst game that I have played <laughs> since Outpost. Um, the, like, they're doing all these things where the idea is that you're only making the big decisions at a certain point. Like, I get that philosophy. I'm playing with that philosophy. I'm not trying to tinker with min-maxing every single city or planet or whatever. I I am, you know, I am pressing the end turn button and waiting for something interesting to happen. And it never does. It's confusing. Someone declares war on me and I get exploded. So I, like, go on the forums and look at what's going on here, and there are all these community managers being like, okay, guys, we know this game is weird, it's different from what you expected, but here's what you should be doing. You should be just pressing the intern button until you have an interesting decision to make. And I'm just like, fuck, I'm taking this <laughs> game back. And I took it back for, I think, Xenoblade, which was also garbage, but... Uh, garbage that I thought I would be able to stick with. But yeah, uh, Master of Ride 3 is just like one of the great examples of how ambition and hype in space games will just blow the fuck up and ruin everything. Um, and there are a surprising amount of those these days. But uh, yeah, I don't, that one does, is not like No Man's Sky where people are going to run into and defend it. Um, this one is like Outpost where it's universally acknowledged as one of the biggest disasters in gaming. Yeah, I think I don't think I ever picked it up actually because I I actually played and enjoyed Master of Orion two during its time, and then I didn't even know there was a Master of Orion three till years later, and I was like, "Is that any good?" And people are like, "No, it sucks." So I just didn't ever bother with it. <laughs> so, and it looked like a spreadsheet. Yeah. Um, like, they were talking all these things about how you could adjust all these things, like you know, it was a spreadsheet, but it actually just looked like that. Um, which is just it was ahead of its time uh, really is what is what yeah. you're telling me like <laughs> it it is in a sense like when i look at endless space 2 um i can sort of see it's trying to do some of the things that master orion 2 or master orion 3 did and not sucking at them and integrating them into an aesthetic hole and you know that's kind of nice uh but yeah it was in many ways ahead of its time just in a way that was garbage did you play it rob uh, no, I mean, but I never really got into the Master of Orion series. Uh, so like, by oh. the time I was really like coming into it, Master of Orion 3 had already happened and basically killed the franchise, right? Nobody was going to be pushing Master of Orion into your hands in the wake of 2003. Um, yeah. 
And, you know, the other thing is in this era, if, if you sort of missed the boat on a lot of these games the first time around, they weren't particularly accessible uh, yeah. for, for this period. We've, we've talked about, like, there's issues of a lot of backwards compatibility stuff for, the, for games this era would take ages to get solved, uh, if it ever would. Yeah. Uh, but the, the other big thing is there's, there's nobody at this stage selling old PC games in a really readily accessible marketplace right like you're yeah. basically buying aftermarket stuff off amazon or like pretty much rating bargain bins at a dwindling or going number of stores Kazaa. Kazaa. <laughs> yeah, that's that's very true but yeah. I, yeah. I look i i'm I, i'm a intellectual property straight edge uh so i <laughs> uh, i want to make sure the money is going to the original developers uh or somebody who just bought a bunch of shit from the bargain bin and never unwrapped it uh anyway or, or someone who bought the rights to sell it from the original developers who will never, ever see a dime of that again. But at least it's technically legal to give God so, money. Uh, the, 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 other, the other game that's notable from this period, uh, if we're talking about, like, Master of Orion represents a failed attempt to sort of reinvent and do something interesting with the genre. Galsiv comes out this year, <laughs> which is basically, like, literally, it, it's sort of, what if... It was just Master of Orion, like classic Master of Orion, but more, right? Like, and this is a game that literally gives you text like Laser Two, you know. This is like it's it's very basic. Um, it's very much what I think a lot of people who love this genre tended to want, at least in that era. And it's a model that you know Stardust kind of adhered to with that series, uh, at least through Galsiv Two. Yeah, I, the the main thing I remember about it was yes, it was just like Master of Ryan two, but also there was enough like on map in solar system movement that made it also feel like civilization. So it was civilization in space doing civilization in space. Um, yeah, I I I was just like yeah, I get it, and it's not what I want. But yeah, when I, when I, yeah, uh, I mean. When I go back and I play play these games, like it it has always felt like the Galsev series is just a little more than I want to deal with. Uh and it makes me understand like why Master of Orion 3, they're sort of looking down they're looking at the evolution of the genre and realizing like, man, if we keep giving people more granularity, this shit's <laughs> gonna become unworkable and boring. <laughs> what if we try to like sort of give them that granularity but abstract a lot of it away and you have a game that unfolds at a skip to the bottom of the page type type <laughs> pace right like and it turns out like maybe the better bet is to just be like no here's your freaking ship designer and here's <laughs> your 50 by 50 grid of a solar system go have fun and for someone that is yeah, and then they could also buy Stardock's Windows start menu adjusting things in the same package. Like, everyone wins. Everyone wants uh, window shades? <laughs> Whatever. Yeah. Uh, anyway. Um, All right, one other grand strategy game that I yeah. didn't actually play, but is relatively interesting for us. Uh, the first Victoria. Hmm. Yeah, I, I did not even know Paradox existed in 2003, and I still have not played Victoria 1. So, uh... Yeah, I, I, mean, I, I, remember, yeah. I remember reading reviews of it. Yeah. Uh, but at this point, it was just not... It was not going to be my thing. Uh, Victoria 2 was my first Victoria. 
Yeah, I'm curious how much of Victoria 2 actually already existed in Victoria 1. Because I still say to this day, Victoria 2 is one of the most interesting Paradox games uh, for a lot of reasons. Yep. Trying to see if I can find some info on it right here. Was this before the first Hearts of Iron? I think Hearts of Iron 1 came out before Victoria 1. Don't quote me on that, but I'm fairly sure that uh, Hearts of Iron was first. Um, Yeah, so Victoria and Empire Under the Sun. Yeah. 1836 to 1920. So it didn't go quite up to the beginning of uh, Hearts of Iron originally. It only went up to 1920. it was the first Paradox game to focus on internal management covering industrialization and social political changes in the country. So it sounds like it was kind Just of similar thematically, at least. Yeah. Yeah. Um, complex market system, one of the best economic simulators ever made. So I guess they already had that in there by then. So, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. It, it's interesting. Like, I played yeah. EU and EU2 when they came. Well, I might have waited a little longer for EU2, but I played EU1 when it came out. Um, and then it just sort of seemed like Paradox was spinning off into everything and nobody was really interested at like the mainstream level. Um, Mm -hmm. and maybe I was wrong to just go along with that and should have gotten in on parts of Iron and Victoria and Crusader Kings early on, but maybe, uh, maybe it's good that I did 10 years later when they actually realized what an interface was. So, yeah. Yeah, you, I think you timed it well. So you also yeah. said it's a good era for tactics games, and this is where my like we're really off the yeah. map for me because a lot of these are happening on platforms that uh, are not for uh, serious gamers. Uh, right, I, I would they're, argue. they're for they're for fake gamers, and right. I say this as the uh, the, the PC uh, uh, guru of the project for the New American Century. It, Right, Interbeat or whatever, uh, but yeah, these these fake game or these fake game platforms actually had some real games that you can emulate on PC, and they're great. Uh, but uh, yeah, the this is really a, sort of a, a fantastic year for Japanese role playing game tactics games. Uh, Final Fantasy Tactics Advance is one of my favorites. Dis- the first Disgaea, which is like really when they start getting intricate. Uh, Dynasty Tactics 2 is another favorite of mine. Animusha Tactics, which I never played either the original or whatever, but I know that it has its fans. I, uh, and it was very weird because that was just like this random action game that suddenly they're like, let's make a tactics game of that. Yeah, and I was somebody looking said, that up, okay. I, was like, I don't remember an Onimusha Tactics. I remember Onimusha. Yeah. Like and the it, fucking fighting ghost Nobunaga in a haunted uh-huh. Japanese castle. Like, hell yeah. yeah. I played that. And then Jean Reno yeah, later that. shows up. Like, which, yeah, okay. Yeah, that's so like, weird what, as hell. Yeah. What doesn't get better was Jean uh-huh. Renault. But I'll tell uh-huh. you, when I look at the screenshots for Onimusha Tactics, I feel like maybe it's not of quite the same production levels. <laughs> well, wasn't it for Game Boy Advance? For, uh, they, were, it? they were doing a lot of Game Boy Advance tie in games for yeah. Like yeah. major like series around yep. this time. Yeah. Yeah. And then. And then Probably the biggest one at this point is uh, the first Fire Emblem to make it over to the uh, to the U.S. Uh, for the Game Boy Advance, which I actually kind of hated, but it was a pretty big deal. Um, so yeah, there are a bunch of Japanese tactics games. There's also Disciples 2, which I believe I recall playing and don't remember too much about, other than I was like, yep, this is a tactics game. Uh, but yeah... Um, 
I actually really like Final Fantasy Tactics Advance probably or definitely significantly more than the original, despite the original being, you know, the one that everybody loves. Uh, it has some very serious balance issues in the narrative, like fears between this should be really good and this is just utter dog shit in a way that like seems personally designed to bug me. <laughs> Where Final Fantasy Tactics Advance is a lot smoother and um the narrative is just like, hey, you're a kid who gets pulled into a fantasy world and you fight some stuff, have fun. Uh, so it doesn't get in my way at all. It's just, you know, here's the bare bones of a tactics game. And it has a really good class system where, uh, you know, you can kind of progress up the more complex JRPG classes. And uh, it's really fun to plan out and very satisfying to get to, like, okay, I have one character for each of these classes and I'm happy with that. Um, it also had a strong uh, idea of laws that you would go into each battle, and there would be a judge who would be like giving out yellow and red cards if you what? broke the laws that were like, you can't use a sword now, uh, so you have to like either re-equip your characters, wait a day for a new law, or um, use the sword and get the yellow card and like that. I think debuffs your character. The red card just like sends them out of the battle entirely. Uh, and some of them would get really, really intricate. Like you'd run into laws that are like no melee weapons. Um, and that forces you to rethink the entire way that you Sounds are going into the, breach, the game. To be honest. And I think there is some, uh, some of that in there. Yeah. Uh, that I do remember Into the Breach kind of reminding me of that. So, uh, yeah, there, there were just a lot of little things about the game that I liked. Um, it took place in Ivalice, which was the world that also Final Fantasy XII took place in a couple years later. And Final Fantasy XII used a lot of the music from it, and I never was able to get into Final Fantasy XII, in part because every time I would play it, the music would remind me of how much fun I had playing Final Fantasy Tactics, so I'd just go play that. Um, so yeah, I, I am a big Final Fantasy, Fantasy Tactics Advance supporter. Uh, the only like huge criticism I had of it, other than that the start is a little bit slow, is that um, it's very hard on the tiny little Game Boy Advance screen to get like the information, details of how weapons work and all that. Uh, so when Final Fantasy Tactics Advance 2 came out on the DS, which had one screen for the action and one screen for the info, it was like, this is everything I ever wanted. Uh, so yeah, I, I'm a big fan of both of those games. So should we turn our gaze before we, before we sort of put this year to bed? And I'm realizing, uh, I think, I, I, unless you want did, to talk about more tactics games. I will... I mean, that's the one that I like the most. I was going to ask TJ if he had played any of them before I just keep talking. No, TJ's about a real guy. gamer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I actually, actually, the only one I played any of at all was Tactics Advance, and I didn't play that much of it. Uh, so. Yeah, so yeah. Uh, the first Disgaea, Hour of Darkness, um, yeah. kind of went at the Final Fantasy Tactics model from a different direction. They were like, let's take this pretty complex role-playing tactics game and make it really complex. And so my main memory of this, well, first of all, it's really charming. It's got this, like, uh, enthusiastic, nihilistic uh, anime-style plot thing that's, uh, and then there are also penguins that attack you and blow up. 
Um, so that's pretty great. Uh, but the the thing that I remember most about it is like at a certain point in the game, they're like, okay, here's this special magical world you can go into where you put one of your items in there and you fight through a randomly generated set of like 10 levels and every 10 levels you fight through the item gets stronger and this is basically an infinitely recursive thing because you're also getting items and going up levels as you do this um and that just like broke my um decision fatigue part of my brain because i was like i need to level up every single healing potion i have and that's just not what you should be doing with that. But uh, yeah, the few times I've tried to play it, I get stuck there. But I, I really like it. And it spawned a series that's like, its fifth one is out recently, just came out on Switch, or it's like on sale on Switch or something now that uh, people are very excited about. And I kind of want to go back into it, but I'm kind of worried that I will just be, you know, doing those item things again. But that that is definitely an extremely strong tactics game. Oh god, there's still Dynasty Tactics. Um <laughs> Okay, we we want to do a Three Kingdoms show at some point in the future and talk about Dynasty Tactics there. Uh, it's fantastic. It's a mess. I love it. Uh, uh, moving yes, on. The, the long-awaited Three Kingdoms show. I It's long-awaited for like five people who think that who are obsessed <laughs> with Three Kingdoms because there's they, when you are... But Rowan, you've been in, saying you know all of them. You know all the Three Kingdoms fans there are in the world. There's no, no, I, I, know the, I know the ones that talk. There are a bunch that would listen, too. Especially if we got Austin. Um, but yeah, there, there is a shockingly large number of people who care deeply about Dynasty Warriors and Dynasty Tactics and uh, will definitely be caring about Total War 3 Kingdom. So that is a show that uh, is, is extremely viable. And if you are in that group of listeners, tell Rob so he believes me and we actually set this shit up. I'm not, I'm not, look, the path to the mic is open, my friend. You just need to find somebody else who shares this enthusiasm of yours. And so far, nobody's nobody has shown up to your party. It's sad. It's getting sadder by the day. You're like, I, no, Brian this is ready. Is whatever. I will just. I will. I'll. I'll DM Austin. I, I can. I'm, I can I'm reading Romance of the Three Kingdoms right now. Okay, so. now we have a host. So, uh-huh. <laughs> uh, yeah, this is. We should do this before February. All right. Uh, yeah, but yeah, that's that's a great game that does really interesting things with the Dynasty Warriors IP and the setting and and just the idea of tactics. It does some very clever things, and I hope we can talk about it in depth at some point. But my throat is kind of hurting, so all right. Can we talk uh, about the general game stuff before we? Wrap? Yeah, let's let TJ talk about Jedi. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, th- this was kind of the year that I got into. Uh, I mean, CRPGs or these, you know, PC style, really deep RPGs. I would eventually go back and play Baldur's Gate and Torment, but uh, um, KOTOR 1 was really my first serious point of contact with Bioware. um, And that's become, other than strategy, probably my favorite genre of gaming. So 2003 was a pretty big year for me. Um, Yeah, I, I... I still to this day have very very fond memories of the original KOTOR. Um I'm I'm sort of in the camp where I like the first KOTOR marginally more than than KOTOR 2, which is almost heresy at this point um in in yeah, the circles I run in. But, there are two types of people. There are uh-huh. extremely boring people and people who prefer KOTOR 2. <laughs> uh you know, it was it was uh 
it was the first game. It was it was one of the first games that I felt like I got to you know kind of create this character that was sort of me and and inject myself into this story with branching choices where what I thought about a situation actually mattered to the story, which was really cool and why I think I've continued to gravitate towards that sort of game since then. Um, yeah, the the original KOTOR was really great. I actually, uh, I even like the original Knights of the Old Republic better than most of the Star Wars movies. Uh, yeah. It's, well, especially it's, in that era. It's up there for me. Well, yeah, definitely more than the ones that were coming out around this time, but even even more, I think, than some of the older ones as well. So... Well, I think like I, Kotor kind of implies that there is an actual like fictional setting and universe with like roles and right place, yeah. right? Like, I, I don't, I do not think we realized adequately the degree to which Star Wars would eventually be, be revealed as just a series of plots that happen in a very fungible conception of space. Uh-huh. Uh, Kotor seems to behave at least according to some sort of internal logic. Yeah. Well, also, it's, it's interesting you bring that up because I sort of had an opposite reaction. Yeah. Um, because it's supposedly 4,000 years earlier. There is but that. The, That's always turned me off. Go on. But but the level of technology of regular Star Wars is exactly the same. And, like, the, there's sort of a setup of, you know, the Republic versus the Empire that's very similar. And, like, it's going through all of these tropes that you know in, you know, in many ways more in-depth and creating creating a stronger world, but there's just sort of this idea, and this has been taken and run with by the uh, uh, reboots, that this is just like this endless cycle of shit happening where there's a gigantic galactic civil war between the light side and the dark side over and over and over, and um, there's a part of that that's like, I find appealing in like a nihilistic kind of way, uh, that that just this is what star wars is it's just this repetitive bullshit and it will never ever change <laughs> and this is one of the reasons that i like kotor 2 is that kreia kind of implies the reason that it's this repetitive bullshit that will never change it's because of the force but um there's still you know it, it's got this sort of meta media to it that it is this it, it just exists to tell the same story repeatedly and so it does it well. Like it's a good precursor to the Last Jedi, which also realizes that wait, this entire Force dichotomy might be fucked. Well, that's Kotor two. Um, Kotor one would be the um, the Force Awakens, where it's like here we are in the same thing again. Mm. Nothing will ever get better. Nothing will ever get worse. It's just always kind of like this. Um, so yeah, I, I found that really interesting about the the world building. That Damn, it, Rowan, it you did. gotta write that how. Knights of the Old Republic laid the groundwork for Star Wars Modern Resurgence. I think I think people already have. No, I think this <laughs> idea is wholly original. Uh, uh, it's the first time I'm hearing it. I think it's a, I think uh, it's a so, Kaiser joint. Uh, also, I, I, I should, I'm certain I've tweeted it. I just want to say when when Malik captures Bastila on uh, I think the ship's called the Ravager. Uh, 14-year-old TJ ran around to every single possible way that you could get into that inaccessible room and used lightsaber flurry on the walls for like 15 minutes trying to get in there. Oh. True story. Sad. <laughs> I couldn't uh, accept so- it. I couldn't accept that they did that as a plot hand wave. They took my Jedi girlfriend away. So, now that we've talked about the second best Star Wars game to come out this year, uh, my favorite... Well, maybe not my favorite, but one of my absolute favorites is Jedi Academy, which oh yeah, 
has kind of gone under the radar because it's like part of the Jedi Knight series, but they didn't actually label it that way, which seems to be increasingly stupid in retrospect because mm -hmm. the Jedi Knight series had a lot of like weight behind it, but it's like a direct sequel to it. You're just not playing the, the main character, Kyle Katar, and you're playing his apprentice. And um, it took the lightsaber combat that was had gotten quite good in Jedi Knight mm -hmm. 2 and and this is an action combat this is a this is a first person yeah. you know, it switches to third person we're using the lightsaber game um, and then it adds a whole lot more variety to that in particular it adds using dual lightsabers or the Darth Maul style saber staff um, and the saber staff is just a goddamn blast in that game yeah, um, and the multiplayer was so good. Like, yes, that, the deal, the duels were amazing. Yeah, like you'd have these huge servers versus people that would just like pair off and have lightsaber duels for like hours. I had great, great memories of that. I, I, I went back and played it a couple years later, like in 2007 again, and was like, let's see if the multiplayer is still going. And when I went in, it would I'd find these servers of like 15, 20 people. And there's like three or four people just running around doing lightsaber duels, and the rest are like sitting in circles doing role playing. And I'm like, "Yeah, guys, that's cool and all, but I, I would like to fight somebody now." <laughs> uh, but yeah, uh, you know, it's it's the the maturation of this series that's one of my favorite series, uh, and the level design and the lightsaber combat are in really good shape. Um, and because it's all you're playing a Jedi the entire time, Jedi Knight Two was the only first-person shooter that ever gave me motion sickness. Uh, and Jedi Academy doesn't have that because you're using the lightsaber all the time. So that was also a reason that I very much like it. Uh, but yeah, um, you could create your character. You'd have a little Twilight Twilight Jedi uh, with a saber staff or dual things, turn him evil at the end. It was a good time. See, I like. I think I lost touch with the Jedi Knight Dark Forces lineage. Um, weirdly, I guess I was turned off when they introduced Mara Jade as a character. And I was like, no, you can't cross the novels into the game. It's, starting to, it's getting weird. Uh, <laughs> Thrawn and TIE Fighter was one thing, but this is, this is, a, little, this is a little odd. Um, but that, yeah, I that's kind of, interesting because that expansion became really hard to find later. I think it eventually got added to like Steven Gog, but for like? a while is Mysteries of the Sith. Yeah. Um for a while it was like that technically existed, but there were all these like you'd find the these like Jedi Knight collection jewel cases in stores, you know. Um and that was never part of that, so it was like maybe LucasArts got embarrassed by that too. But also Kyle Katarn went to became one of the biggest characters in the pre-reboot novels. Uh, so the, those streams were long crossed. Um, speaking of like space nonsense, though, there's a game <laughs> I want to draw some people's attention to here because I'm not sure a lot of people ended up playing it. Uh, I'm and trying to figure out what it is here. This we're is exciting. Kind of in the process of seeing the entire arc repeat, just on a much larger scale, all these years later. I'm talking about Chris Roberts' Freelancer. Ooh. Yes! Alright, so here's the thing. This is why, like, uh, this is why I never screwed around with Star Citizen. Like, why I was skeptical from the first. Like, I was excited the first one. It was like, we are going to launch a space combat sim. And I was like, hell yeah, I'm, I'm in. And then it started being like, oh, it's going to be this entire, like, 
persistent world you can like get, live your whole like space fighter pilot life in this game but you're not just a space fighter pilot you can also be a trader a merchant a pirate and the feature creep just kept like broadening and like what the conception of the game what the game was get got murkier and murkier and it all started to seem very very familiar to what we'd already gone through in the wake of his departure from uh origin and his founding of i believe digital anvil uh when he was promising freelancer and the original pitch for freelancer was basically star citizen it was basically this is going to be uh what if like the old wing commander privateer games but you could be pretty much anything you wanted to be and the world would be the game universe would be living and dynamic around you uh and you'd be playing with tons of other people and that was pretty ambitious. Like he started pitching this idea, I think, like around 2000, maybe even before the 90s ended. Uh, so freelancer had been floating around there in the ether for ages, is like the thing that Chris Roberts was doing next. I think they might even really Star Lancer in the middle of it as kind of a once again a bit like the Squadron 42 thing, kind of a little like you know taste of of, of what's to come. Well, there's another part of his history here where after wing commander and privateer he went and decided that he was going to become a hollywood movie bigwig weighed the wing commander movie and then was crawled back to microsoft and was like i want to make you the ultimate space video game and microsoft's like here have a bunch of money i'm sure you won't disappoint us what an era (laughs) god damn uh i love it so much uh also the Wing Commander movie is so much fun. If you have not seen the Wing Commander movie, it was on Prime not that long ago, but if you have never seen the Wing Commander I have picture, actually never seen it, and I love Wing Commander. It is a fucking treat. Like, okay. It is it is good, bad movie. Um, like, I've talked about this a little bit before. David Suchet, famous for playing Hercule Poirot, uh for for years and years but like david suchet a real actor is um i think he's like admiral tallwin or whatever in that in that movie he's like the, <laughs> he's the, the big terran confederation admiral he's in that movie for like 30 minutes and then at some point he gets like unconvincingly beamed in the head by like a falling piece of the set <laughs> grabs his head in a really exaggerated way the way like you might fake a headache when you're trying to like bail on a party and you're like oh i just i'm not i'm not feeling real good all of a sudden and like literally walks out of the movie (laughs) (laughs) and like you'll think it it is so weird it looks so much like david suchet just pieced out of the movie that you'll think surely he's coming back because that's not how they just got rid of a major character no he's gone like david suchet without anyone drawing attention to it is just like well, I'll see you later. My head hurts <laughs> real bad. Goodbye. Uh, so, no, I highly recommend Wing Commander. Definitely worth watching in the way I think it's even more enjoyable than, like, that terrible Doom movie. Both are fascinating artifacts of their time. But, like, Wing Commander is, like, all Chris Roberts' ambition and him trying to bring to life the Wing Commander universe in the course of one movie on a far too small budget. It's great. Anyway, so Freelancer comes out. And it's, I, I ended up buying it sometime later. And the weird thing is, in some ways, it's really forward thinking. 
Uh, they had made a lot of compromises to make it very mouse and keyboard friendly. Uh, really, the thing it reminds me of a lot now, I did have this frame of reference at the time because you know this didn't exist, but if you played Rebel Galaxy a few years back, that's kind of what Freelancer was. It felt very much like Rebel Galaxy, uh, right down to the fact that it didn't entirely feel like your spaceship was moving through 3D space. It always felt a little bit like you were just sort of driving on a flat plane, uh, connecting system to system. But it did a really good job of having universe that felt like there were politics and factions going to war. You'd come across fleets. Where it all goes wrong is basically... That game bears all the hallmarks of like financing having having been pulled, yeah. and the game just yeah. having been dumped. Like the first, so that's literally what happened. I think. Yeah, I mean, I, they I, fired Chris Roberts and says we're we're cutting bait. We're putting out this game. We'll make it as good as we can. But like, we get this isn't happening. The the thing that he promised was just like that was a promise. That's impossible to do. Here's what we got. Right, and so like the first ten hours of that game. You're like, I don't understand why this game wasn't kind of hailed as a classic. Like, it's it does feel like what if Privateer, but much bigger. Uh, it also does feel a little bit like a single player MMO, uh, but it's it, it mostly feels really good. And then midway through, it just stops doing any of that. Like, you are clearly going through unfinished areas, unfinished environments, uh, and plot stuff just begins happening right and left, and the universe stops reacting to it. Uh, the, like the universe you were starting to go through like clearly parts of the setting that were never finished and so you're like going into the heart of the massive like militarist faction and there's kind of nothing there there's a few like ai like war fleets sailing around that never do anything and that's it and then you're on to the next thing uh and so freelancer i think is really interesting because like freelancer kind of comes out and that is the moment you know the space shooter is definitively dead you know, you you were maybe kidding yourself that in the wake of like X Wing Alliance, all this stuff, that maybe this thing would make would find its way back. Maybe Chris Ra Roberts would would bring the magic back. Freelancer com two comes out, and bad news: nobody's making space shooters anymore. Uh, say goodbye to Free Space. Say goodbye to uh, you know X Wing. It's all done, and it's it's kind of been hard times ever since. Uh, but I think the thing that I think Chris Roberts clearly never got to make his vision of what this game is. He was, he's, he's trying again and it feels like the same thing is happening. Uh, the it's, it's just too big. It, I don't know. I feel like if he can just get like 25 million more dollars, he can probably pull it off. Yeah. <laughs> 25, 30. Uh, what, what haven't we, what haven't we tried to sell yet? Planets. Can we sell people planets? Whole <laughs> planets. Uh, and yeah, this goes back to the the idea of the space game that got like so messed up with Mass of Ryan three, and so messed up with Outpost, and so messed up with No Man's Sky. Uh, just like people get invested in the idea of the perfect space game, and uh, then they get really mad when you write a review saying that Stellaris is not that. And um, yeah, <laughs> well, uh, you know, though I think now it is the perfect space game. Uh, right, right. That new expansion probably did the trick. I need yeah. to play it. I'm I'm very curious because it made some profound changes, but it, uh, it's it's a big improvement. Uh, it's not quite there yet, but it's it's probably the biggest improvement that they've made in a single patch. Rowan, you should give it another try. I I might, but I I guess I should do Holy Fury. There's that too. Uh, yeah, and the 
Uh, did you have a good segue? I did not. No, there's two <laughs> other games I want to hit real quick. Okay. This is the year well, co- the first Call of Duty comes out. Oh, uh, wow. Which I played. Like, I bought it that year, and it's weird to think about it. I've been thinking about this a lot lately. Were military shooters always kind of rote and boring, and they were just novel at one point, and I didn't notice? Or have they changed and the newer ones feel rote and boring and there's something different about those early ones? I've never quite worked that out, but Call of Duty was kind of, um, I don't know, it was kind of perspective altering for me, right? Like, yeah. the, like, I will never forget there is the sequence. And okay, yeah, they ripped off uh, a really bad World War II movie for a lot of their most memorable sequences, right? They're ripping off Enemy at the Gates right and left for... Uh, their for their Eastern Front stuff, uh, but like I will never forget like the fight over uh, Pavlov's house, and there's the sequence where there's a bunch of Germans defending like the massive like central municipal building in Stalingrad, and there's just like hundreds of these guys in a trench, and there's hundreds of Russians charging them, and it took me a long time to realize like that sequence is not dynamic. It's not like you can sit there and snipe at Germans and they'll just respawn. Like nothing's going to change. But at that time, the first time you see it, it feels like something profound is happening. And it is interesting to me that 2003, like this game was a hit when it came out. Uh, but I think it's easy to underrate today how immediately impressive and revelatory it was because it really did take the things that were probably most memorable about medal of honor allied assault and really did just do the proverbial like cranking them up to 11 thing and if you were looking for a game that made you feel like you were in the middle of uh, a massive war epic like call of duty was it and turns out people had like an inexhaustible appetite for that yeah and i don't think i don't know that anyone's done it as well since then like call of duty one and two yeah i bought them for the campaign I didn't even really play that much multiplayer. I bought it because it was a single-player World War II shooter, and I liked single-player World War II shooters. Like, I had Battlefield if I wanted to just, like, stand on the wings of a Mustang and, you know, do multiplayer shenanigans. Um, Yeah, and I I feel like those two games, particularly the first two in the series, put you in into the middle of a battle in a way that, you know... Even the high production Call of Duty campaigns of more recent years that are more like an on-rails action movie type thing never really created anything as dramatic or as memorable as that. I mean, nobody buys shooters for the campaigns anymore, so I can see why they've de-emphasized that. But I do kind of miss the era when you could buy a shooter for the campaign and expect to get a really good experience out of it. Yeah, I mean, did people stop buying shooters for the campaign, or did the campaigns become so rote that like people just realized there's nothing to them anymore? Like, yeah. I, I remember like when I finally played uh, Modern Warfare, I was I was really taken aback. Yeah, it was really impressive. It was really stylish. Had great pacing, some great set pieces, but I was really taken aback by how on rails it felt compared to earlier Call of Duties, where it felt like there was. Mm-hmm a tactical space you could play in please rob calls of duty (laughs) yeah well and like your squad mates too like i remember your squad mates in in call the first call of duty were like surprisingly intelligent for the time like the way they moved and acted was so realistic compared to what everything else was out there at that point man i don't 
I don't have a lot of patience for uh, like Gearbox in general. Like there's studios just never done it for me that much. Uh, but man, I would like them to do another. Um, oh gosh, uh, Brothers in Arms game. Because I feel like Brothers in Arms became where the spirit of the early Call of Duties kind of went to reside, and everything else became. Basically, an episode twenty-four uh, with yeah. a multiplayer component, uh, you know, strapped to it. Uh, the last game I'll I'll, I'll shout out here because uh, it's one of my favorites of all time. I, I I adore the shit out of this game, but I think it's also underrated uh, for like it being a harbinger of things to come. And that's Prince of Persia: Sands of Time, which is yeah. developed by Patrice Desilai, and is one of the first games I think from Ubisoft Montreal. And I think it's a, I think it is a great game. I adore Prince of Persia, the Sands of Time. I think it has a great script because they, in part because they got Jordan Mechner to write it. Uh, it's a beautiful art style. There's great back and forth between the two main characters. Uh, I think it's, it's a wonderful game. I've played it many Music. times. Yeah. It Music is some of the best ever. It feels like an old, like Technicolor Hollywood epic uh, is, is the way it, is how it feels. And it has this beautiful, like, almost dreamlike menace right like i mean you you'll go up there like you talk about great skyboxes when you go to like the top of like some of the towers and you look out over the landscape the the palace and the sands of time are just like you know roiling around the buildings and it feels like you're in the city in the clouds oh it's it's gorgeous uh and i think it's also i think it's also great because it refuses to give you a happy ending uh and i think you know it's part it becomes part of a what what is turned into a trilogy retroactively uh there's a bad middle game and then try to bring it back together with, with two thrones <laughs> uh, it's oh. a good middle game oh. it's just got bad aesthetics but there's actually really interesting ideas in it as a game and there's also metal ass cheek thongs <laughs> yeah that's and uh yeah the aesthetics thing is kind of where it where it drives me away and that doesn't get better in two thrones they also don't get the same actress uh to to play uh the female lead but i think it stands on its own i think it remains a great game but i think the other really important thing to to note about it is if you look back on it from the perspective of this is ubisoft montreal beginning to take shape this is patrice desilet uh, starting to figure out like his design ideas, you can see very easily how this is going to spawn like Assassin's Creed within a few years, right? And like this is going to spawn the idea of the giant sprawling Ubisoft action game. But it also helps like really nail the form of the ten-hour blockbuster action adventure game that until the assassin's creed model takes over it becomes the model for the blockbuster video game uh especially uncharted but like there's this direct line from tomb raider through this to uncharted and so on that's uh this game is absolutely essential for that and especially the way that it like really makes the action and the story and the aesthetics and all that interchangeable or essential in the same ways they're they're all together there's not like a, a prince of persia without combat there's the it, it all seems to fit and move with a certain pacing that chasing that like perfect pacing idea becomes the goal of triple a games for the next five ten years 
and I think this is really the first game of that era. That's a great point as well. Yeah, it is sort of the um, ideal cinematic, uh, you know, action game. Um, yeah, Max Payne Two comes out this year. I adore that game, but I've talked about it elsewhere. Beyond Good and Evil, um, you know, kind of the one of the great smaller uh, action action adventures, uh, and becomes enough of a cult hit that to this day people are still <laughs> still lighting candles for it, uh, still eagerly. Uh, awaiting the chance to possibly be pushed into generating crowdsourced assets for it. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I I have a couple shout-outs here. Yeah. Um, First of all, one of my all-time favorite video game characters, Tracy McGrady. Okay. uh, NBA Street Volume 2, just really, really good arcade basketball style. I had Tracy McGrady on my team. I think I got Connie Hawkins, too. Maybe Bill Walton. I think I remember those were my three. But yeah, that was uh, just one of the best action arcade sports games, I think, ever to come out. Um, Dark Cloud 2 is a really interesting action JRPG that has a lot of progression systems, both in terms of like how your characters and their, your weapons progress and also how it reinforces your progression through the story by like having you build houses in a... Uh, like safe spot that becomes your headquarters but you're actually like building it with uh, stuff that you find out in the world Um, there are some serious pacing issues with it that make me not really want to go back and play it the tutorials are interminable as happens with a lot of Japanese games in this era era, and they're unskippable Um, but the first time I played it when the tutorials were actually relevant it was fantastic and every time I've tried since other than you know putting down the controller for 15 minutes and taking a break while it talks at me. Uh, it's still a favorite. Um, and then uh, Mario Kart Double Dash and Mario & Luigi Superstar Saga both come out this year and are probably my two favorite Mario spinoff games. Um, and I think that's just a coincidence because they're extremely different games on totally different systems, but uh, Mario & Luigi Superstar Saga is the first of the handheld role-playing games, which uh, it uses, because it's on the Game Boy Advance, which does not have like the amount of space that some of Nintendo's later handhelds would have, it's really economic in how it tells its story. Uh, and it does this primarily through really, really fantastic pixel art um, animation for Mario and Luigi. Uh, and like all the other games just resort to talking instead, and they're really slow and boring, but this one... It, because it's just animated, it works a lot better. And Double Dash is my favorite Mario Kart. Nice. Yeah, I think the only the one other one on the list that I'd shout out that hasn't been mentioned yet would be Tony Hawk's Underground. I was a fan of a lot of the early Tony Hawk games, and I'm pretty sure this was the first one that had something like a story-based career mode, which was kind of cool, where you kind of you know start as this kid in the suburbs, and you can sort of work your way up to this pro skater career with you know all these turns and tribulations along the way which always uh i always like sports games that interject some form of that um storytelling instead of just having you you know level up your character and buy better stuff and move on to a harder competition there's one other interesting game here that i think is worth mentioning because one of the big stories of this era is the the merging of the Western and the Eastern on consoles. Um, and that's Deus Ex Invisible War, which attempts to do that and fails pretty miserably. Um, 
but it fails miserably in an interesting way. It's a, it's a game that is it's not like totally terrible to play. It's a disappointment after the original Deus Ex certainly, and you can see where huge compromises were made in terms of how it uh functioned as a game especially in order to work on consoles which did not have the abilities of pcs of the era but it it is a fascinating disaster and uh, uh i think essential for the the sort of general storytelling of the the history of this era yeah it's it's something that i'm very curious i've heard some people have gone back and played it on like a modern system and everything where load times aren't really like they basically don't exist and they found something interesting and worthwhile there. Um, There's a lot interesting there, even in just like how they build the world after the first day is in. Yeah. Um, I don't know. It always feels like <laughs> talk about a series that is doomed to have interesting beginnings <laughs> and then kind of get abandoned for a decade. Uh, I yeah. can't wait till the pre prequel uh, comes out in like another seven or eight years. And it's uh, just like a, a modern day military shooter. <laughs> uh, Bob Page boardroom advent, adventures. The, the speaking of that, it, it it parallels the Prince of Persia in that, like, you had this really interesting, janky initial game, and then you have this middle game that's kind of a disaster, but there's still something there. And then the third game, or third and fourth, in the case of Deus Ex. Uh, they they sort of realize here are the things that people like about it and they smooth out all the jank but it's also a lot less interesting like i think two thrones is a great prince of persia game but it's definitely does nothing to the series beyond being a good incarnation of it and i i just don't think that the human resources deus ex is that good at all um it's there it works it's fine but it's it does not have the things that made me fall in love with the original and even the bizarrely bad sequel yeah i look i i like garbage cyberpunk so i still basically like it i guess uh although i don't know altered carbon might have turned me against that who, who can say uh but yeah you know i think in previous episodes we've talked a little bit like we tried to do best of list for the year i feel like this year we were so all over the map like we played completely different things from this era like, i mean we so did there, th th this is true, um, but the two big ones are ones that we could debate, but I think we can just give them ties. Okay. Uh, the, the best overall game or best non-strategy game, I think we can give it a tie between Sands of Time and KOTOR. I don't want to try to force either of us no. to make that decision. Okay. I pick KOTOR. I know you pick KOTOR, <laughs> I TJ, pick Sands of Time. That's the point, TJ. That is the point. <laughs> Um, and then the best overall game is the Frozen Throne or Rise of Nations. Yeah. Or I mean, best overall strategy game. Like, I don't want to make that decision. Yeah. I love both of them. Um, Rise of Nations is a bit more impressive because it's a standalone, but Frozen Throne is really the best expansion of I'm all not time by picking between, standards. I'm not picking between the two war games. Like, I'm just, it's, yeah. It's yeah. <laughs> There's, yeah, it's, it's, it's a weird year. Um, I think that it was a recurring theme, I think, from a lot of these episodes. Uh, it's, it's interesting to realize how many, with, with hindsight, how many trends are already starting earlier than you think they did, uh, and how many eras are sort of outlasting the time when you think of them as ending. 
anyway, so that will do it for 2003, and that will do it for this week. We'll be back next week with more strategy discussion. Three Moves Ahead is produced, as always, by Malcolm Hermes and is hosted in the Idle Thumbs Network. You can learn more about the show and discuss this episode with our community at threemovesahead.net or follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash 3MA. Apologies if I've sounded weird during this episode. I feel like I had my teeth drilled uh, today. I, I, I like went straight from the dentist to into this recording, and I feel like everything I say sounds and feels really weird. Uh, coming out of my mouth so hopefully it hasn't been too sibilant too unbearable and there we've got our episode title <laughs> too that too sibilant no e- everything sounds weird coming out of my mouth 2003 in strategy <laughs> we are so high uh <laughs> finally through is that supported by listeners just like you on patreon you can learn more at patreon.com slash 3ma anyway we'll be back next week with another episode of three moves ahead until then for tj or rowan This is Rob Zachney saying goodnight.